welcome everyone to another episode of JDAI Connect podcast. These are our kids. I'm Beth Oprish along with my co-host. It's Ari Whitaker. How are you doing today, Beth? I'm always happy to be around you, Ari Whitaker. <laughs> We're together in Miami and we just scored a great person for our podcast interview and that is none other than Mr. Jim Payne. How are you doing, Jim? Oh, good, good. Glad to be here. Welcome to the podcast. You do know what this is, right? Yes, yeah. I do. Fantastic. <laughs> we're so, so excited to have you. So we're in Miami, actually, for the state scale um, meeting. It's December, and I'm from a place that's really cold, so this is really nice to be here in Miami. I and think it's gorgeous. Just even warms, it's even warmer. It warms my heart more to be with Ari Whitaker and Jim Payne. So, I have the same sentiments. I was expecting you to say that. Yes. Jim <laughs> so let's talk first, Jim. Just, I mean, I, I know you and I have got the great fortune of being able to work with you for a few years. Ari's getting to know you, but kind of tell us a little bit about yourself for our, our, our listeners out there in podcasting. All right. So I came to this work in a very circuitous route. Um, after I got out of law school, my first job was in the assistant district attorney in New York County. Um, after about two years, I primarily was doing homicide. Let me, let me back up further. Where, where did you grow up? Where, where, where? I grew up in Harlem. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Harlem. Um, left, uh, went into the military, came back. Thank you for that. And then, thank you. And then finished college and went to law school in, in New York. Um, I only applied for three jobs. When I got out of law school, wow. one was as an assistant DA in Manhattan, the other as an assistant DA in the Bronx, and the third was an assistant DA in Brooklyn. <laughs> Those are the only jobs I wanted. Having okay. got out of law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. Okay, I got my wish in what I still maintain is is the greatest district attorney's office in the country, in New York. Um, so I, I was in the trial division. I went through the normal somewhat of the normal learning process that rookie DAs do. Um, I moved along fairly quickly because I was older than most of my contemporaries and I'd seen a slice of life um, by being in the military in the 60s that most of them had never experienced. So I was, after about two and a half years, was doing primarily homicide cases. Um, So that went on for about four more years and, and, and help me out again. What time frame are we at? Uh, so I joined the DA's office in 1976. So you're, you're mid to late 70s. You're a DA. In yeah. Okay. All right. And then um, had that experience, which I, to this day, I actually relish, although there was part of me in retrospect um, that thought maybe years later that the amount of unfettered discretion I and my colleagues had in that office was, in retrospect, frightening. We didn't have to check any boxes to give a plea offer or whatever. We just did what we thought was right. I mean, there were there were policies in the office, but basically I was free to handle my cases the way I saw fit. Um, and as I got more experienced and better at it, and I had a good reputation in the office as a, trial, a good trial lawyer, um, nobody sort of second-guessed anything I did. And what was it like to have that all that power? At the time, I thought it was the appropriate way to go. Okay. It wasn't until years later when I basically started doing this or, or got my mindset changed, which I'll get into in a moment, about the work we do now. Um, it dawned on me, said, wow, you know, 
I destroyed whole families and nobody stopped me. Nobody could stop me. Mm-hmm. They sort of said, go ahead, do what, you, do what you do, guy. And at that time, though, you didn't see that as destroying no, families. No, I thought that as protecting the public. And what do you mean by destroying families? Well, anytime you take somebody out of a home, even, you know, fortunately, uh, only twice in my career did I think I had the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And both times we found it out early enough that I never had to go forward with the case. But, all right, most of the homicides that I did were people knew each other. They weren't random stranger things. They were a couple of guys fighting over drugs or, you know, some other beef that, mm-hmm. that two people had with each other. So look what happens. Somebody's dead, their family's lost them. I'm prosecuting the guy who's going to go to prison for 20 years. All right? Everybody loses. There are no winners. Nobody wins in that system. So, but in the middle of it, I didn't think that way. Okay? It wasn't until later, you know, when you reflect on what happened and how it happened and what you did and what you were allowed to do that I said, boy, you know, I'm not sure that's the best thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm just saying that people who are in this responsibility now should be very mindful of that. Yeah, and that, and that mindfulness came to you as part of a journey, right? Because mm-hmm. it's mid-70s. you got a ton of power. You're- and crime, crime rate was soaring, um, you know, to the extent that in 82, um, I got a call from the Corporation Council Office in New York, which is the equivalent of the county attorney, but it's the county attorney for the entire city. Um, and he wanted to, someone on his staff wanted to speak with me about leaving the DA's office and taking over the prosecutorial function in family court, which would make me New York City's chief juvenile prosecutor. And one of the impetus behind that was a couple of, he had done some homework and a couple of judges said, you know, if you look at somebody who's tough and who's really good at this, talk to this person, which was me. And I took the job. I met with them. I, I took the position. So I'm now, every juvenile delinquency prosecution in this city is under my authority. And to be honest, if you were to characterize my philosophy or my operation back then, I never met a kid I couldn't lock up. And I was pretty good at it. And my staff was pretty good at it because I recruited them and trained them in my philosophy and my way of doing things. And at that time, pretty proud of it. Mm. But right. also, what did it, where did that come from? That you didn't just grab that out of thin air? No, that, no, that it was, no, it was the... the when I left New York in 64 and went into the military, I didn't come back till 72. Um, when I came back, Harlem did not look like the Harlem I left. We were in the middle of, uh, of, the, uh, of a heroin epidemic. Crime was, was out of control. The neighborhood that I had left, because there was always some feeling as I grew up in Harlem through the 50s and early 60s that there was hope. This was not all there was. Right. And you may have been poor, but everybody around you had about the same, so you didn't realize that. You know, and everybody had enough to eat. And, and you know, there was, there was a sense of community and neighbors. Uh, I remember as a kid, if I did something stupid, uh, the biggest trick was to run home and explain it to my mom before the neighbor explained what she saw. Because <laughs> I figured if I got my version of the story on the plane first, <laughs> at least get your yeah, I'd, avoid out there. Death. Yeah. Yeah. I'd avoid death, okay? Right. But that's, there was a sense of community, all right? I came back, and it was pretty much gone. And I just, I sort of became angry. Now, probably carrying 
you know, I did a couple of tours of Vietnam. I'm probably carrying a lot of other anger about stuff, but this was the way I thought I'm going to avenge the stuff. So that's where that, okay, that, that evolved. Yeah. And then in the middle of being in family court, the super predator narrative developed. Mm. And I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, every, every, well, I wouldn't say everybody did, but that was the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Scary kids, no conscious. And the way to treat that is the only way to treat that was to lock them up. Yeah. So you're DA at this time when that was what people were saying to do. Right. And, and that was what the mayor wanted at the time. And I technically worked for the mayor. Um, and then later worked for the mayor directly because I got appointed probation commissioner in New York. So through that whole process, my philosophy pretty much changed the same. I think when I got to be, or I know, when I got to be probation commissioner, I started to look at the world, my responsibilities a little differently. Um, they, but, but what would that change me? Because it's still... Well, well, there was a newspaper article when I was interviewed when I took the job in probation where the, the headline was, it's not like losing a case. All right? It's like okay. losing a person. So I started to get more in touch with, my responsibility now is not to be a prosecutor, not to avenge wrong, but to help people get their lives straightened out. So you have like a perspective shift. shift. On... Give them the job responsibility. Right, okay. You know, I'm not yeah. law enforcement. And, and, and I always use this now in my work when I, when I speak with probation directors around the country. You're not law enforcement. You're more like a social worker, you know, with, with law enforcement authority. But, you know, your responsibility is to help people, kids, get their lives together, mm-hmm. all right? So I started to see that. And then during that course was... Probably when I was introduced to the biggest change, I met Bart Lubau. Um, so put us in a time frame here. So it's 1985, 86. Okay. Uh, Bart was working for the first Governor Cuomo. I was working for Mayor Koch. Um, I won't go into detail, but we both had our own respective laments. And we used to, when he was in New York City, we we link up and we'd go to a place and have a few libations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and commiserate with each other. And one evening we were in our usual place and he said, you know, I've had this idea or, that I wanted to really do something different in juvenile justice. And I said, what? He said, I wanted to, to establish an academy where juvenile justice professionals around the country would come. And people like you and me and, and some other people I know in, in the field could sort of teach and coach them so they don't commit the same mistakes we did, that they, they carve out a different kind of juvenile justice system. Interesting, okay? That's all I thought at the time, interesting. Um, and I still maintain a friendship with Bart even to this day. And several years later, about six years later, he started JDAI at the Casey Foundation. And I would see him a couple of times a year because uh, he and his wife were friends of, of me and mine, and we'd hang out. And he kept trying to say, why don't you do this? Why don't you join? And I had personal reasons, not philosophical reasons, why I couldn't do it in that moment, right? And then in 2002, he won. He finally talked me into doing it. Well, Bart Lubell, he finally... Yeah, he finally convinced <laughs> he me to do it. it. Yeah, yeah. He finally convinced me to do it. And so I started doing it in 2002. And, and what is it? Um, being a team leader in JDAI. Okay. So well, working you- around the country... Uh, initially, I was um, asked to work in with one jurisdiction because um, I was actually at that time not doing this on a, like a full-time capacity. I was actually the director of adult programs for a nonprofit 
who worked with hom homeless and disabled vets, um, men coming in from uh, reentry mm -hmm. uh, from prison, and I was running uh, housing and supportive programs for them in Westchester County. So, and so I started to to get my toes into JDI in '02 when Bart said, "Look, you got time, right?" He said, he looked at me and said, "You're really bored. This the job doesn't have a lot of." for you, does it? It's just, you show up, you say, okay, guys, do what you do. And I said, yeah, so I said, how about this? So um, I, I was assigned to work in one jurisdiction and got to know the job, got to know the work, not as well as I should have. Um, and then in 2004, started doing it as a, a quote-unquote full-time consultant in TA. The biggest turning point for me around the job which are now and now totally bought into the philosophy of the work because I saw it made a difference. I saw you could lock up fewer kids, protect the public, and have better outcomes. So when you first went, so you, you're a, a district attorney, then probation, you kind of shift a little bit your thinking. But where else did the, then that shift come to really seeing that it was okay to lock up less kids and locking up kids? You know, I mean, you were seeing results, but I mean, was it being in a JDI site or were you kind of getting there well, already? I, I was I was probably moving all too slowly in that direction. But between my friendship with Bart and my significant other at the time, who was the one who introduced me to Bart, who runs a nonprofit that works with men in reentry, uh, people in reentry from adult prison and, and started a, a drug program to, to treat crack addiction. Between the two of them working on me, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things where if they want to change, change a man's opinion, get a woman to do it. There you go. <laughs> because that that'll work. That'll yeah. work every time, right? I had no issue with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so between the two of them and the, the point that Bart had data and evidence that this worked, all I had back in the day was an opinion that it worked, you know, a hunch, and I could not prove that over incarcerating kids was doing anything for public safety. Crime rate was still going up, kids were still going away, adults were still going away, nothing was changing. I started to see a change and through this I'm saying, okay, this is how you do it, this is what you do. So 2002, I, I was just doing one site and then I left the place I was at um, and started doing this as a uh, team leader and TA provider on, on a regular basis. This is what I did, this is my work. Um, Meteorocular at it the first couple of years, uh, a significant shift in my ability to do the work and do it at a high level was when the foundation recruited Raquel Mannersko. And I worked closely with Raquel the first couple of years she was there and she was my boss, right? And she taught me how to do technical assistance in a very good way. And to this day, we have just a, a mutual admiration society with each other. Yeah. She taught me, how, this is how you do this work. Raquel's a real deal. Yeah, this is how, this is what, what you produce. So, example, I had done an assessment in the site, and she had been with me, and I said, okay, I'll handle the, the assessment report. And I told everybody in the room, we'll get it in 30 days. Well, 30 days was up, I still hadn't finished it. And, boy, she called me up and ripped me a new one. She says, it's your word on the line, and it's the foundation's word on the line. You can't do this. You've got to stay on top of it. Yes, ma'am. I'll get it out in three days, all right? Yeah. I just put it all together, got it out, and she read it. She said, fine, get it to me. And I learned that, yeah, the credibility of the work is on the line 
and I, I don't, I'm not an employee of the foundation, but people in sites I work with don't understand that. I represent the foundation. I'm in the room, Casey's in the room. When you're doing GADI, absolutely. And th- right. So, and then the more I got into the work, the more I started seeing the results, and the more I started seeing this really works. Um, and then we had so many different things that were added along that made sense. Uh, so now we have the deep end, okay? We have a, a higher than ever emphasis on race equity. We have probation transformation. We have, you know, continuing scale, none of which was there in the early years when I started from 2002 to about maybe four or five years ago when all of this, this new iteration of the work came into being. It sounds like, though, you know, just kind of looking back throughout the whole process, what actually got you to buy in was the two tenets of the program that we have here at Data AI, which is data and collaboration. Like, well, more than it was data. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the proof that this worked. I mean, because I had to convince people in jurisdictions that I was assigned to, to participate with that it worked. And I think the more I was convinced that it worked, the harder I pushed. Now, Bart, you know, being a friend, has always said, yeah, you're just doing penance for what you did as a prosecutor. And it's a joke between <laughs> the two of us. And he's, he's partially correct. I was going to say, is that going to be a joke? But I mean, Yeah, he's partially correct. I can't do undo the, undo the damage I did to kids and families back then, but I can make sure that nobody ever does it again. When we know better, we do better. Right. So now I know better. I know what works. I know what doesn't work. Right. Um, it, it's about messaging it in a way that people understand it and embrace it. And that's been part, that's really part of the work. It's not, I don't do anything but, but coach jurisdictions to say, hey, there's a way to do this. Try this. Well, let's talk more about those four, like you've been in JDI for like 15 years now. And so now we're talking about not just the core strategies, but these, the deep end, probation transformation, race equity, inclusion, and the fourth thing. Um, deep end, race equity, scale. Scale. Probation transformation. So let's take a quick break and then let's get back. And let, I'd love to, I think we let's both, hear right? some, yeah, like to hear here's some a little about bit that. more. Let's do that. <laughs> we'll be back after this break. Hi, I'm Lisa DeSabato Moore, and I want to talk to you a little bit about JDAI Connect. JDAI Connect is an online destination where anyone, practitioners, policymakers, community groups, advocates, youth and families, researchers, anyone interested in juvenile justice reform can talk, share resources, and learn from one another. It's a vibrant community rich with discussions, resources, and training opportunities. I use JDAI Connect for my coworkers to connect them with their counterparts across the country so they can get their questions answered. Join me at jdaiconnect.org. That's www.jdaiconnect.org to begin connecting with your colleagues around the country. And now back to the podcast. Okay, so we're back with uh, Ari Whitaker and I'm, what's my name? You, I think Elfish. you're Beth. Beth yes, Elfish. that's right. <laughs> so we're back with our guest, Jim Payne, and we're talking about um, system reform, juvenile justice reform. And so when we, before the break, we were talking about um, 
different areas that we need to be focusing on and really JDI is focusing on. Yeah, so I would love to hear from you. What do you think the next steps are? How do we take this to the next level? Well, I think the next iteration of the work, which actually fits into JDI as we have done it so far, really remains in four areas with, with the, the, the paramount, the highest mountain to climb, which has always been race equity. Um, we've reduced detention. We have better conditions in detention facilities. A lot of good things have come out of the work the first 25 years, but all of us look at where, where systems are now and still see too many black and brown faces in the system on probation, in detention, in out-of-home uh, placement and commitments. So that I think now is the, the next mountain to climb. And in that, there are areas that would help reduce uh, over and over incarceration, if you will, of children of color. We now do deep end and we've done it for the last few years. And we've done it, I think, in the 13 um, selected jurisdictions, it's, it's done well. Deep end is basically looking at who is in out-of-home placement at the very tail end of the system, who is being committed to state custody. What are, who are these children? What are they being committed for? And when we look at our data, they're overwhelming children of color, Black, Latino. A lot of times too many girls given their population in the system. Um, and it's basically... In some jurisdictions, I think they think they're doing the right thing for the child. But if you take a kid out of the home and out of the community for a year or two or whatever it is, and then they go right back there. And there's no evidence that I have seen that they are better equipped to handle the stresses and strains that were there before they left. All right. So, and when children are in custody like that, one of the maturation processes is learning how to make your own decisions. You're not allowed to make your own decisions. Right. So the maturation process gets stunted. So we're not really helping the kid figure out logically, you know, how do I behave? What, you know, what's the next step? What, what, how do I make better decisions? And I'm not saying there are, are not kids who need to be separated from the community for a period of time, but we need to really be more careful about why we do it, why we're doing it, because we're not getting the results. And, and it's like, when I was in the adult system years ago and I was in a meeting with the head of parole in the state and I asked uh, him, how successful are you with parolees in terms of uh, recidivism? And he said, we're about 39% successful, meaning 39% of our parolees never come back in the system. Mm. And my first thought was, where can you keep a job in this country and be 39% successful? Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, other than, you know, being a batter in baseball and you're heading for the Hall of Fame if you're hitting 390, all right? So, you know, that's the sort of thing we look at. So under the, the race equity is looking at the deep end of the system. It's also now we, we have um, issued a, a white paper on probation transformation. And it really makes sense. What is probation? How is, what should we be doing with kids on probation? What are the best approaches to it? And the sort of supervised monitor and control has really not done a great job because we have all too many children in detention uh, and in out on placement for failing probation on a technical ground. They didn't go out and commit another offense. They didn't go to anger management. They didn't go to school. They didn't do all the things that, that what I call knucklehead adolescent or teenage behavior. But they didn't compromise the public safety. Right. Yeah. They're not a threat to the public. They're more of a non-thinking threat to themselves. 
And how do we deal with these kids without taking them out of their community or putting them in detention? All right? You put a kid in detention, all you're showing is you have the power. You're not helping them understand why they should go to school. And when you put them in detention, they're not going to school. So on the one hand, you're saying, you have to go to school, but if you don't, we're going to put you in detention so you can't go to school. Right. And it also seems like an opportunity to bring in community organizations when it's done yeah. like that starts to Yeah, and, and, and community engagement is a huge part of success in establishing race equity and inclusion. Uh, if you go to a lot of meetings in a lot of places, uh, the system stakeholders are talking about kids in the system, and they're basically talking about kids in the system. Most of them come out of a select few communities of color, and there are very few people of color at the table. So they're talking about children they have really no daily contact with other than the ones they see coming through their system. And communities that, quite frankly, I think some of them think are so damaged that kids are better off not being there. And I don't think that's true. Um, And it's not pernicious. It's, It's just the way systems evolve. Um, I can remember meetings when I was in the DA's office where when you picked up a homicide, you had to present it to the rest of the bureau for input and say, like, this is what I'm charging, this is the evidence, whatever. And I can remember so many times my colleagues, almost all of them might, would say those people when talking about the community. Nice. All right? So I never flinched because I had a good career going, I'm not going to I'm not going to do this, Right. But in retrospect, I'm seeing those people, they were talking about me because I came from those communities, that right. community, right. all right? So, you know, but, and these were good people. I mean, these were people I still call friends. It was just the atmosphere, the, the mental, the mindset of working in the system. So we have the deep end where we're looking at who gets taken out of the community. We have probation transformation. How do we work better with kids without uh, bludgeoning them to death with conditions and rules and, and all that other stuff? We're looking at scale so that we don't have justice by geography. A child shouldn't see a different form of justice living in the state because they live in one county as opposed to the next. Justice should be equal for all children. And that's what state scale. Scale. And that's what they scale does. the state, it should be. Right. One system of justice for for all children. All right. So you're not not, uh, disenfranchised if you happen to live in one county as opposed to another. Because kids don't get to pick with it. They don't get to pick their parents. Right. They don't get to pick their neighborhood. They don't get to pick the school. They don't get to pick all that. But yeah. when it doesn't work, we blame them. Right. Okay, exactly. They're the ones that get blamed. All right? yeah. So we do that deep end scale. scale probation, transformation. Probation, race, 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 equity. race equity. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's, is that it? Did I cover Yeah, that? no, those are the four that yeah. we right. wanted to talk yeah. about. All right. So, and that, this is, those four, I think, are the new iteration of quote unquote JDI. I now don't use JDI as much as I used to, even though it is very much a well-known name or code word. I now call it in my jurisdiction, um, juvenile justice transformation. I like that. All right. Um, it's the JDI principles. Yeah. You know, it's, and, it's, and, it's, though, it's really looking at those four areas. So, I mean, you would always say that the core, the core of JDI, those strategies, those are invaluable to start in order. Yes. But to transform the system, then we need to look at the deep end. We need to look at scaling it up so that this, this initiative is throughout the state. We need to rethink how we do probation. Right. And everything has to have that race equity lens. Right. Everything you look at, everything right. you do is through that lens. Um, because that's who makes up most of the system at the back end. Um, we've done 
decent job at the front end of that, not a good job, uh, but we really can now complete that, that circle um, so that children of color are not at greater at risk of, of being in the system longer and with more negative impacts. So that, that, that's, I think, the future of the work. Um, I think that's where the foundation is probably looking to go. How we're going to do it, I think, is still an open question. Um, but it is uh, a dialogue that's ongoing. How best to do this? And so what advice would you have to people that want to do this work? There are all kinds of, depending on where you are, like let's say you're not in a jurisdiction that has ever done JDAI. There's a host of information on JDI Connect. You go on that, you, you get an idea of what the work is. Thanks for that plug, about. by the way. Okay. You, you, <laughs> get, you, you get an idea of how it works at, at the bottom, at the first level. You can then ask questions of people. How did you do this? What was the impact? There's data on there. You can see it, that it works. And then the question is, how do you bring that to the people you want to convince it, wherever you are that this is something they should do? All right. Um, we do have people who provide technical assistance to sites, but I think that is, is a mode that we've used for the first 25 years. And I'm not sure it's a mode that we can continue to use and get the kind of success we want, particularly with the natural outgrowth of the work, which are the four that, that we mentioned. I think we're looking for a new model for that. Um, that will not include having somebody like me coming out to your jurisdiction yelling at you all the time. You know, I mean, it's, it's old. So, you know, there, there are ways that we now can do it differently. A lot of the ways we're looking to do it differently, we're just now pioneering. Uh-huh. Like JDI Connect. It's only f- less than four years old, actually. Right? Yeah. Two years. Yeah. Not even two, two years. years. Yeah. Until we officially announced it, right? Well, we didn't get, it was implemented at the last, last conference, State conference, so. which was two years ago. Yeah. All right? So it's new, too. Um, so we're still looking at that and saying, what's the best approach for this? What's what's for that? Um, we're looking at providing technical assistance. What's the best methodology of doing that? Can we do it in a way where uh, I don't have to go to Kansas or wherever, that I can do it remotely and still have the impact I've had when I physically was in the place? Um, so for our listeners, really quick, I just it sounds, could you give like some insight about what type of qualities that we kind of, that we should have in order to really endure this process? Because you've said a few things that it sounds like for all of our listeners, whether you're a community member, whether you are a coordinator, a judge, like you have to commit to this process, it sounds like. Do you yeah. have any other... No, you, you can't do this. This is not something you can half-ass. Yeah. All right? Um, you have to do it with a full commitment. You cannot engage communities that are that are impacted by the system with a wink and a nod and say, hey, this is cool, all right? You have to be open and transparent. You have to be willing. Um, I work with a lot of police officials around the country, and, and with, with merit, they say, look, I go in these community meetings and I get blasted about how we police their communities, and he says, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I say, you don't have to. But it's their perception, and their perception is their reality. Your responsibility is to change that perception. You don't have to agree with it. Just change it. If this is what you think, and I don't agree with you, but I'm going to make sure that I change your thinking around this. That's that's where, what it comes down to. Because we all come from different perspectives on it. 
So let me ask this, you know, our time is short and I apologize because we could just chat with you all day long. Oh yeah. But um, we will, <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me ask this question. And then we always end with the game of this or that, but if you don't mind me, like when you were, if you don't mind me asking, when you were at the DA's office, about how old were you? Well, I went in in 1976, so that would have made me um, 30. So if you could go back and tell your 30-year-old self something, because we never, you know, Monday morning quarterback, you complete all the passes, right? Mm -hmm. And you know better, you do better, and the wisdom of our year should teach us, but if you could tell that 30, if you could tell that 30 year old DA, give that 30 year old DA some advice, what would it be? I would say that the conclusion I came to that made the change was I gave up being right about everything. Hmm. I, I embraced the possibility I didn't know all I needed to know okay. about, about what to do. You didn't know it all. Yeah. Sorry. That's some good wisdom right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lived wisdom. I'm right with you there. Just give up being right. Okay, so let's end with a couple questions on this and that. First of all, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. Yes. I would love to have you. But we're going to do, you know, this or that? Uh, yes, I'm, okay. I'm familiar with that. You're, I hope you're very familiar with it because you're on JD Act Neck all the time and seeing all the episodes. <laughs> so here we go. All right, throw him with this or, throw him with this or that. All right. So early riser or night owl, which one are you? Night owl. Boom. I know. Okay, mine is scotch or bourbon. Scotch. Every day of the week. <laughs> okay, so this one may be tough. New York or Atlanta? New York. Wow. New York. I'll, I'll always be a New Yorker, even though I do like Atlanta. I yeah. Like um, I work in New York City now, so I go get to go back there. I have three grandchildren there, two daughters. I, I will always be a New Yorker. I will always think like a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only thing that, that 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 when I go back that bugs me, and I try to say, "How did you ever stay in this old shoes?" Was riding the subway. Really? Yeah, I'm like, "How did you do this for 60 years of your life?" Now you have taken over. Yeah. So, so yeah, New York. I hear New York builds characters, and you got a lot of that. So, I'm oh, anyway, builds characters. <laughs> you know, We're gonna finish talking about New York at a different location. Right. Yes. So, thank you, thank listeners. you, thank you, Jim Payne, thank you, Ari Whitaker. My pleasure. Thank you, you both are now supposed to say thank you, Beth Oprah. Thank you, Beth Oprah. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening. Check out all the other resources on JDI Connect, and we appreciate you listening. Be in touch. Goodbye, Ari. Goodbye, Beth. Goodbye, Jim. Goodbye, Beth. Goodbye, Ari. <laughs>